0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him?
1: Episode 300, Does the New Testament Teach Trinity Monotheism? With Dale Glover, Part 2. In this second half of my conversation with young Canadian apologist Dale Glover, we talk about a number of scriptural issues, and I end up objecting to a couple of different premises of the main argument that he presented last time. And if you want to see that argument again, I've posted it on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. We start by discussing his appeal to the work of Dr. Richard Bockham. Where to start here? Uh, Bauckham, I've published a paper on this called On Bauckham's Bargain, which you can find online, published in the Theology Journal. It's also a podcast episode. I think his reasoning here is strikingly ambitious, but also strikingly problematic. So he thinks the traditional talk about God and the Father and God the Son, God the Spirit being one essence or nature, he thinks that's somehow outdated because we don't, we're we not Platonists or Aristotelians anymore. And so he's trying to replace that. He's like, hey, here's something that means the same thing, right? And so he talks about Yahweh identifying features and says that they belong to the identity of God and so on. But look, um, I take it what you mean to set aside Bakum and his profoundly unclear arguments. When you talk about Yahweh identifying features, I take it you mean that that's a feature that only Yahweh can have, so that anybody that has that feature just is Yahweh, Right, anyone that has this feature is identical to Yahweh. That's that's what it is for a feature to be Yahweh identifying. Right?
0: It depends on uh, what you mean by identify. So, so that's why I did because I I know that your main thing in that that great video, Bakham's bargain, I I loved it, and obviously you can tell some of my my premises come from that video uh, in terms of your characterization of Bakham's bargain. But yeah, I think that it's not numerical identity. I'm not saying oh, if you have this feature, you are numerically identical to God. There's some kind of looser sense of identity. And I, I define that as just saying, well, you're, you're at the very least, you're a distinctive and essential part of Yahweh.
1: Well, I mean, the things that you mentioned in your, in your argument, uh, creation, eschatology, maybe in some sense wrapping things up at the end of time, cultic monotheism, you know, being the only God that should be worshipped. These aren't things that have to do with proper parts. I'm not quite sure what a proper part of Yahweh feature would be. Some feature that you could only have if you were a proper part. Yahweh identifying feature, that would be something that required you to be an improper part, as metaphysicians say. They say everything is an improper part of itself. Identical things are improper parts of themselves, of one another. Yeah, so I mean, trying to get a case that uh, the persons of the Trinity are each parts of God out of the Bible is really tricky. I don't think Bacham is really trying to do that, although he gestures in the direction of social Trinitarianism a couple of times. But let me go back to your previous premise first. You say, in the Bible, God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are distinct individuals standing in interpersonal I-Thou relations to each other. The obvious weak link here is the Holy Spirit. Now, I grant that in a couple of passages the Holy Spirit is vividly talked of in personal terms, So at first glance, it sounds like it's supposed to be a person. But whereas you have real interpersonal relationship between Jesus and the Father, you know, Jesus prays to him, God answers back. They're supposed to be cooperating. Jesus is serving him. He's vindicating Jesus. I call this the problem of the missing amigo. When people talk about this eternal dance of love within the Trinity and so on, you just don't have that portrayed anywhere with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit doesn't have a proper name, Uh, The Holy Spirit's never worshiped. The Holy Spirit's glaringly absent from worship scenes. Think about the two places that arguably the Holy Spirit is kind of most the focus and even appears in a sensible manner. At Jesus's baptism, you have God, the Father, speaking to Jesus. This is my beloved son, Jesus, you know, receiving this commission from the Father. And then the Holy Spirit comes down sort of in the manner of a dove, now, I don't think that's meant to be literally like you see in the Jesus movies where like this bird lands on Jesus's shoulder or something or like you see in paintings. I think it's some, something's up coming down on him, like this power, this anointing is coming down on him. And maybe it's landing on him like you would imagine a bird would. But my point is just that is not the portrayal of the spirit as a third person. There's no personal aspect of that. It seems like just a power coming down. Same thing happens on the day of Pentecost in Acts. The Holy Spirit comes down on them and they have these tongues of fire on them and they manifest miraculously, but that's not calculated to portray the spirit as a person. The essential background here to me is the Old Testament and the Old Testament pattern of spirit talk. I think it's basically this take a human there's body and spirit and minimally the spirit is kind of the unseen inner aspect of the person it's the source of their life and their thoughts and actions and some never mind if dualism is true but this is something that's neutral between dualism and physicalism there's the observable body and then there's the hidden spirit the inner aspect of a person right arguably in the old testament they assume that in some sense god has a body because sometimes he can be seen I don't think they mean to imply that he depends on a body or that he's physical or that he's limited, but they do portray God as having a body. And so therefore, some very rare cases you might see God or God's backside, like Moses does that one time, but more often God's going to act invisibly by his spirit. So the spirits of God is basically God's unseen power. It comes down on the prophets, you know, it's how he normally interacts with us, basically. And it seems to me that this is unchanged in the New Testament. It's just that they get really vivid personifying this sometimes. Uh, a really interesting passage in this regard is Second Corinthians 3. In Second Corinthians 3, Paul says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. And then in the next verse, he calls the Lord the Spirit again. The Lord and Paul, unless he's quoting the Old Testament... The Lord in Paul is normally the Lord Jesus. So he's calling Jesus the Spirit. Again, this is not something you'd expect on a Trinitarian theology in the Bible. Paul's not a Trinitarian. So his point is, now that Jesus is raised and exalted, still he thinks that Jesus is active in the world, invisibly, usually. There are people who see Jesus, like Paul, but normally he's just invisibly present when two or three are gathered. Um, And he's in some sense ruling the church. But again, this is invisible. So this is his invisible active power, basically. So you can call him a life-giving spirit or just the spirit here. So sometimes talk about the spirit, I think, is really just a roundabout way of talking about God. It's by talking about God through his invisible aspect. But it could also be talking about another unseen power, which is the exalted Lord Jesus in New Testament theology. So I think the spirit is the weak link in the second premise of your argument. You can get I-Thou relations between Jesus the Father in 15 different ways, but you actually don't have anything that demands that the spirit is an extra person in the mix. Let me pause there and let you come back, but I want to go back to your premise three about Yahweh identifying features and talk about creation, eschatology, and cultic monotheism
0: gotcha okay yeah so so i think um this is good just to recap so so dale tuggy's objecting to my second premise which says god the father jesus and the holy spirit are distinct individual persons and he's saying hold up the holy spirit isn't really a person so this is the first objection that that he's giving goodness i I had a whole bunch of, of verses here but so so let's just so in the first place it's good so dale is saying that the holy spirit when it's mentioned is either a metaphor for God the Father, what He's doing, or Jesus. And this is one of the points. Uh, it's it's in an Anti Wright's book, and I'll, I'll, I wrote down the verse, but it, there's a verse where it says, Look, the Holy Spirit, in the first place, it calls the Holy Spirit Lord, and it, it differentiates that from Jesus. And it also, in that same verse, I, it might be Second Corinthians, the one that you mentioned. Uh, um, I have to look it up, but it also says, The Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus, and at other times it also says it's the spirit of God, implying God the Father.
1: Yeah, because there's two unseen powers there, is my view.
0: Oh, okay, there's two spirits. Okay,
1: so... A spirit is basically an aspect of a person, right? Again, it's opposed to the body. You know, if like Paul, you see the risen Jesus physically, you've encountered more than the spirit of Jesus. You've encountered, you know, all of him if you have a vision of god on his throne presumably that's a lot more than just the normal christian familiarity with god's spirit which i think any christian can sort of recognize
0: there are verses that just hint that there's one spirit though like why doesn't it mention two spirits so like for example there there are these three but before i get to the personhood thing there are these three things that are mentioned and you know you're baptized in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, not Holy Spirit. Um, there's also N.T. Wright, uh, so it is 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter 13, verse 13, that it's a it's a Trinitarian blessing. It's the closest thing we come to a Trinitarian blessing. According to N.T. Wright, it says, the grace of the Lord Jesus the Messiah, the love of God, meaning God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, not spirit. So Verses like this seem to indicate there's a a limitation. There are at least three things involved. There isn't four things or five or something like that.
1: If you're going to talk about one spirit, it's going to be the spirit of God. And so you do see references, you know, my favorite one would be Ephesians 4 at the start of the chapter, almost there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called the one hope of your calling, one Lord, that's Jesus, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all. So call them triadic passages. The other famous one is that blessing at the end of Second Corinthians, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you. I mean, look, even that's not what you'd expect for a Trinitarian, right? God is one of the three. There's no suggestion that all three are somehow God or parts of God or something like that. In my presentation, uh, which is podcast 189, which became a book chapter in a German book, I talk about these triadic passages. And basically, I think that normally these triadic passages are, I call them Christian unity slogans. They didn't even have a fully assembled New Testament. They didn't have the whole structure of bishops that later came to exist it's an apostolic theme to emphasize the things that unite all Christians because people were getting divisive. I'm better than you because I was baptized by Paul versus Apollos or something. Uh, Well, I was baptized by Peter. Like, no, look, we all serve one God. We all have one spirit that's been given to us by the exalted Jesus on Pentecost. There's one assembly, one church, there's one Lord Jesus, one human savior, and there's one God. So, you have to be kind of looking back with later kind of Trinitarian goggles to say, aha, this is the triune God here. I could have made this a fact in my opening and, you know, I'm a different version. I would make it a fact, but remember that the Trinity according to tradition is something that's supposed to be really important, right? Even if it's not essential for salvation, it's not an option. It's supposed to be really centrally important, even foundational to Christian theology, if not Christian living too, right? So given that, you would expect that God would lay this out somewhere in divine revelation. You'd expect it to be a passage where you could look in your study Bible and the header supplied by the translator says, here's where it talks about how God is the Trinity. But there just isn't a passage like this, right? We're just hunting around, finding little bits here and there and trying to piece them together. But just the fact that we have to do that is not what you'd expect. You'd expect God to just simply be reasonably clear not murmur and hint but just tell us hey guess what i'm a trinity deal with it the jews don't like it but hey there's three parts to god the fact that that's not said i think is really something that needs to be reflected on
0: yeah yeah i i agree with i would agree with you just to say quickly that it's something that needs to be reflected on and i've tried to do that but it I don't see it as the same problem. This, the, It's an important doctrine, but I don't see that, oh, well, if it's important, it has to be spelled out explicitly. There, there could be also, I mean, the Messianic prophecies aren't all spelled out perfectly. I mean, you, you've got to, there is this element of God wanting us to develop, to, to develop salvation-fit character traits, like wanting to seek him and putting pieces together. It's, um, you know, think even with something like the ontological argument, that didn't come around yeah. a thousand
1: years. Yeah, I mean, this is a very important point, I think, that Protestants need to really grasp. The Old Testament, we think God has given further divine revelation, and we think that those New Testament authors are authorized to provide new interpretations of the Old Testament. So, in light of Jesus' ministry, teaching, death, resurrection, exaltation, they do think that God kind of built in some hidden messages to the Old Testament, which now can finally be seen. Messages that you would not have gotten on your own just by going by the Old Testament, right, as Jews will argue. So, you know, Jews reject our interpretations of all the famous passages, Isaiah 53, Daniel 7, etc., Isaiah 9, yeah, but that's because they don't have this further revelation. They're they're resisting this further divine action basically. Okay? But we are not authorized to treat the New Testament like New Testament authors treat the Old Testament because the New Testament as it says in Jude contains the faith once delivered to the saints. So we cannot go find new meanings that the New Testament authors, you know, couldn't imagine but only the author God knew about. That's not authorized. Revelation is desperately hard to interpret, but it's an apocalypse. Most of it's letters, right, and gospels. It's not esoteric literature. So there's no authorization for us to hunt around and find hidden meanings in there. We need to stick with the surface, clear meanings that they are emphasizing. Otherwise, we're outsmarting the authors. Now, if you're Catholic, you can just say, hey, look, the church gave us these books. The church is really the vehicle of God's revelation. And uh, yeah, the Trinity is not in the New Testament. Some Catholic scholars will happily concede that, not only concede it, they'll tell you outright on their own without without being pushed.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: they just don't care because they they found the Trinity on church authority. So yeah, they say, look, it's in the Second Ecumenical Council and in many later councils, like the Fourth Lateran Council, Council of Trent, First Vatican Council, and so on. Mm-hmm. And that's really what you have to have to get the Trinity. It's a delusion of Protestants like Calvin and Luther that actually you can just skip all later tradition and just, you know, pretty easily derive it from the New Testament. Modern New Testament scholarship does not support that.
0: Mm-hmm. You need to look at the non-inspired writings. They they help inform proper interpretations that they're not inspired. Sure. Um,
1: yeah, they can provide context for sure.
0: And same with, with our ideas. I mean, both of us develop very important ideas. I, I mean, the notions, doctrines uh, between Calvinism and, and Molinism and Arminianism, the the Bible writers weren't thinking of that, but I, I think it's okay for us to take the raw data of scripture and develop it uh, philosophically to, to make sense of it um, and that sort of thing. That That's kind of the same thing.
1: I'm not disagreeing with that. I mean, we have to come up with what's the best explanation of what's written and what's not written. That's just devoted serious reading right i mean we're expected to do that Mm -hmm. but what i'm saying we can't do is to come up with an interpretation of their words that they never would have thought of in the first century we can't come up with something just very different that's not actually authorized by the text it's that that i'm objecting to
0: okay i'll let you have the last word on that yeah i think that there could be some ideas that the first century authors wouldn't have thought of in terms of that terminology but as long as it's consistent right if that raw data like the doctrines of tulip no one would have thought of that or something and but as long as you can get the biblical precedence and that's that's what i'm trying to argue here so let me get back to your your notion about the holy spirit isn't a person and we can finish off that that objection because i know you want to get to premise three there okay so in terms of the holy spirit not being a person I'm, i'm not sure i mean i a lot of the same things that cause you to think Jesus is a distinct person from the father applied to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit pleads to God, the father he, um, personal pronouns he's called a him are are applied to him and i do know the bible verse for this one john 14 16 to 17 so you know is when jesus says he's going to give us the spirit the the counselor to be with us forever and because it neither sees him nor knows him you know him for he dwells with you so he the holy spirit is a he it's it's a a person so yeah I'll, i'll leave it to you and i'll give you the last word on on that but aren't there verses that Hint that the Holy Spirit is a, a
1: He, a person. I immediately grant that there are verses that, on the face of it, sound that way. But you know, context is king in interpretation, and that's why I mentioned the context of the Old Testament and just of the entire New Testament. You know, and we need to be careful about what's there and what's not there. If we just cherry pick five different verses, you know, it can just look obvious that hey, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is a person in addition to the Father and the Son when you put those personal-sounding language in a wider context, it's just not clear that it should be taken that way. Go back to what I mentioned before. You'd expect the Holy Spirit, if it's a divine person, to be worshipped. There is no thing like this. So there's a really glaring absence there, for instance, in Revelation 5, or any time worship is being talked about. That really strongly favors the view that let's not read too much into those, right? I have a couple early podcasts on this Trinity's podcast, 25 and 26, where I interview very well-educated guy, Pastor Sean Finnegan about this. And yeah, so I, I claim this is a case where further study is very important and history confirms this, right? Because the status of the Holy Spirit, we're told by Gregory of Nazianzus was still a lively subject of dispute in the year 380. So scripture is just not as clear about this as it could be. When the Trinity's podcast returns, we discuss what Dale Glover called the Yahweh-identifying features that, in his view, the New Testament attributes to Jesus. I wanted to go back to your Yahweh identifying features, and I, I think I deal with them in different ways. But you know what I'm trying to do is answer the argument from Scripture, from clear teachings of Scripture, uh, as opposed to disputed uh, and difficult passages. So uh, the Yahweh identifying features that you mentioned are supposed to be creation, something about eschatology, and then cultic monotheism, like being the unique object of worship. I guess. Yeah. One basic point is. If Jesus or the Holy Spirit have Yahweh identifying features, allegedly, we also need to be on the lookout for features that imply distinctness from Yahweh. And I mentioned several of those in my opening statements, such as Jesus having been dead one time. That's something that the immortal God can't undergo. Being subject to God, getting all of your amazing powers and your message from God, that's something that God can't do. So. Don't just sort of be selective and submit to confirmation bias and pick the God-sounding things. Look at all the God-sounding things about Jesus, but also look at the God-distinguishing things about him is the way to go about it. Um, So creation, this is a big topic. We could spend the whole couple of podcasts talking about this. I go at length through the passages in Trinity's podcast 258 and 259 called Who is the One Creator? But basically, my view is, okay, in the Old Testament, Yahweh is the unique God. And what makes him unique from other unseen beings is that he is the only creator of the heavens and the earth. And he did it all by himself. He didn't have any help. He demands credit for that. You know, me alone it was only his hands so to speak that got dirty in creation and so that's that's a strong emphasis that you see in Isaiah for instance but it's look it's always there it's in all the writings attributed to Moses i disagree with the view that you know originally the jews were polytheistic or henotheistic whatever that's supposed to be and then they somehow evolved into monotheism later when deuteronomy came around i disagree i think in exodus and genesis there's one god and this is the creator and Because of that, no unseen being is comparable to him, and he's fully provident over his creation. Okay, so in the New Testament, the uncontroversial and clear mentions of creation, it's God, that is to say, the Father who's the creator. And so they just are accepting the Jewish view. It's not really an issue. Now, there's a handful of passages, John 1, Colossians 1 mainly, where creation is attributed to Jesus, or rather God created through Jesus is their interpretation, which opened the door to uh, Logos theories in the late 100s. Basically, if you take any passage where Jesus is alleged to be the creator in the New Testament, I claim that either it's the Genesis creation and it's not talking about Jesus. I think that's what's going on in John 1. Or, it is talking about Jesus, but it's not the Genesis creation. It's the new creation that Paul talks about. But again, if you just look at the clear passages that just mention creation, usually in passing, because it's not, again, it's not a subject of dispute. You just have God. You know, Jesus mentions when God created them male and female. All the scholars tell us that God is a co-referring term with the Father in these books. So he attributes creation to the Father. He doesn't take credit for creation himself, which you would expect him to, because that's a pretty astounding achievement if you think about it. Uh, But look, even if you take, say, 1 Corinthians 8, if you think Paul's point there, which I don't, but if you think Paul's point is that God created through Jesus, that doesn't make Jesus the one creator. That makes him the second to last, second farthest back creator. God has to be the ultimate source of everything else. If God created through the pre-human Jesus, then Jesus is not the ultimate source of all else. He's like the next step back uh, from that. So that's fine if you're a Logos theorist and you think that uh, Jesus is a second and lesser God than the one true God, but it's not good if you're a Trinitarian eschatological things i'm not exactly sure what you mean but i mean in the old testament god is going to be the judge you know he's going to wrap up the current evil age and usher in his kingdom but i just agree with paul preaching in Acts 17 who mentions that god has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him that man from the dead so yeah, you would think that you know whoever is the judge is going to be God himself, but according to the apostles, he has delegated this to Jesus. It's no good to insist that something can't in principle be delegated when the New Testament is telling you that it's delegated. Uh, I mean, look, even the Old Testament should make us think that some shocking things can be delegated, right? So Several times in the New Testament, they presuppose and they reference this famous vision in Daniel 7. In the vision, I saw one like a son of a human being or son of man coming from the clouds of heaven. Oh, who's that? Is that God? Who's this coming? And no, he came to the ancient one. Okay, that's God. We, that's been introduced. That's God on his throne. That was, that was earlier in the passage. So the one like a son of a man comes to the ancient one, is presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship so that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. And again, Revelation 5, it kind of looks like either right at God's throne or sharing God's throne, maybe. That's kind of surprising, but given New Testament teaching that God has exalted the Son to his right hand, they understand that to imply that he has to be given religious honor basically but that's okay because this is to the glory of god so yeah in old testament times they could be very absolute right because the jewish prophets are constantly fighting against the creeping idolatry of the nations around them hey yeah fine worship yahweh that's cool but you better worship these other deities of the other nations if you really want to have your bases covered that's like the the polytheistic selling point right yeah, okay, maybe your god's real, but hey, these these other nations, they have their other gods too. So yeah, relative to Yahweh and the other alleged gods, the Old Testament prophets pound the table that you can only worship Yahweh. Right, cuz he's the only true god, he's the only creator that's sovereign over the world that he created. And these other beings presumably are real, but they're just like, you know, later tradition would we'll call them fallen angels, but um Whether they're real, that's not to say that you believe all the mythology about them. So, yeah, in the New Testament, Jesus isn't presented as a God, much less one of the pagan gods of the nations. He's explicitly, right, a servant of the one God, the one God's anointed one. And so he's just not in competition, right? Like he emphasizes in John that he and his father are about the same business. The father and I are one, he says in chapter 10. And so that's why you can honor God by honoring him. It's because there's no competition. It's precisely God that has uh, arranged him. Now, if you say, well, I think that's idolatry, you shouldn't say that. Typically, worshiping any human, you know, if I worship the Reverend Sun Young Moon, that's idolatry. If I worship Donald Trump, that's very foolish kind of idolatry. Um <laughs> But, you know, think about the incident in, um, I believe it's Exodus, where God tells Moses to make this serpent on a stick and the people have to look to it to be healed, to be rescued from this terrible situation, right? I mean, you would think that sort of thing would be idolatrous, to have this serpent on a stick and you have to look towards it in some reverent fashion. But anyway, that's just what God told him to do. So, Given that God told them to do that, it's not any kind of defying of God. It's not going to against God's will. So, you know, you can't have a strict rule against, uh, again, the way that the ancient Jews would treat the temple, you know, where God's presence would be in the temple. You know, they would treat the holy of holies, you know, kind of like it was God almost. You know, they would only come so far. Only the priests could go in. They kind of pray facing it and so on. You might think that was idolatry, but it's certainly not a sin. Uh, it's it's just what God willed for them as part of the old covenant. Well, part of the new covenant is, I want you to honor me by honoring my son. And that's what Christians have always done. Even Unitarian Christians like me, with a few exceptions.
0: All right. Well, yeah, fair enough. So, so that's your challenge to premise three. I, I, I noted down, I think, about three three point main points there. So the first one, I, I'm glad that you brought that up because I, I heard you bring this issue up with Chris Date about, well, Jesus died. God can't die. So they, they're distinct. They can't be the same or identified with each other. So here's my take on on that. And this is speaking philosophically, so, so let me know what you think. But I actually would deny, uh, I think it was your premise three that says God can't die. No, God can biologically die because we're both dualists. So biological death is defined as... The person, uh, or in h- normal human cases, the soul, the person is separated from the body. That defines biological death. So what took place in the incarnation is that the person, God the Son, became embodied in a, in a body governed by a human genome. That's what it means to have the human nature. That's the essential human nature in, in my books. And when he died, his person was separated from that body, experiencing biological death. But I think what your argument is trying to get at, it's not possible for God to stop existing. And Jesus didn't stop existing. The person of God, the son existed for those three days.
1: That's not my point at all. And my point is more fully spelled out in podcast 145, tis mystery, all the immortal dies. So I claim that there's a common concept of what death is, and this is just part of common sense. It's not tied to any philosophical account of what human beings are. And so death is just, it's the ceasing of most or all of one's normal life functions. So it's relative to what kind of thing one is. So death with humans, you know, you stop breathing, moving around, your heart stops beating. What else does death involve? Do you cease to exist? Do you continue to exist? I don't think the ordinary concept answers any of those questions. It's just, there's normal functions that people do. When you lose most or all of those, you're dead. And so the atheist and the theist who believes in afterlife, they both agree that grandma's dead, you know, when they're at her funeral and there's her body in the coffin. Okay, so if God becomes human, what he is essentially is divine. He's not essentially human because there was a time when he wasn't human, right? Even though he enters into a mysterious union, a hypostatic union with a complete human nature, soul and body, that's what Catholic tradition says. Still, he's not essentially human because there was a time when he wasn't human.
0: Correct.
1: Okay, so then you define death relative to his normal life functions. And uh, look, it's not part of God's normal life functions to breathe and walk around and have a beating heart. So when this human nature gets crucified, it looks like just God's normal life functions are just going to go rolling right along, which is what you'd expect because... I claim in that same presentation, podcast 145, if you look at the New Testament, it says explicitly several times that God is immortal. And I think you have to take them as meaning that God is essentially immortal. Okay, if you're essentially immortal, then it's just impossible in principle for you to die. And so it looks like you just would would get an apparent death here. If God is Jesus, God still is essentially immortal. So I guess it would just be a faux death or something. But... Yeah, the New Testament authors are very clear about the fact that Jesus really was dead. You know, that's yeah. they're vigorously against any kind of docetic take on the crucifixion. And the idea that God died to them, that's just kind of they, they would never think that. It just it doesn't occur to them. He's the immortal God.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with you, Tate. So, in the first place, yeah, I don't mean it's essential to the divine. I, I'm yeah in my take so under my definition of, of death which I, I do think is biblical I, I do think that the bible understands death as, as the, in a normal human case it's it's the soul or the person being separated from the body and therefore the body is no longer a living thing it's just the corpse so under that definition number one it's not essential to god obviously the divine nature is not embodied none of the the persons have to be embodied to have the divine nature but then when he acquired a body governed by a human genome then he he also acquired the essential properties of a kind nature of the human kind so that's that's how he had both natures simultaneously and then god the son's personhood was separated from his body for 3 days and then resurrected after that so it,
1: yeah so my argument is that just that wouldn't count as death for him at all if you agree with the point that the new testament portrays the crucifixion as involving a real human death I mean, a real human death is the loss of a human life. If you undergo a real human death, you are a human being, just by definition, just conceptually. You have to be a real human being to die. Okay, then now you're into a two natures theory where there's the eternal sun, which is one person, and then there's this human being, which is another person. And the sun just sails along living all the time. And this other second person, the human person, dies. So it's a two-self Christology. I don't think you want that because you just characterized it as God having, uh, or the Son having divine qualities, then he just comes to have human qualities too. You're making the, the human nature just be qualities, right? Yeah,
0: um, yeah.
1: But that kind of human nature can't die. It's not, a, it's not a human being. It's not a living, it doesn't have a life to lose. But the the only person in that account would be the eternal divine person. But he can't die. Now, if he could animate a body somehow, that's conceivable, right? Just you have a body and then you have this unseen divine being that's basically inhabiting the body, and that body could get nailed to a cross and assume room temperature and so on. But then the divine person just, you know, happily continues his life, but now not using a body. I just think that's not a that's not a real death. It's a faux death. It's a fake death.
0: I think our fundamental difference... There is—is is how do you define what is counts as death as a human death? So yeah, I, I definitely there's only one self, one person that becomes embodied uh, or animates that body, as you say, and taking sort of a Cartesian dualist perspective for simplicity. There, um,
1: I mean, Dale, I think you're really stuck with a docetic take on on the crucifixion then, because it can't be that guy who dies; he's the, an eternal, immortal, divine being. But uh, then nobody died. Just this body got discarded. I mean, if you're a Christian, you believe in demon possession. Now, I don't know if this is possible or not. There's no scriptural example of it. But imagine I died and my soul leaves my body. Okay. And then a demon takes over my body and the body heart starts beating. Brain waves continue. Somehow this demon has just taken over my discarded body. And then suppose um, you come along and you say, you foul demon, you, you, can't, uh, you can't have Dale's body. That's, that's a terrible thing. And you just, you know, you, you murder me like in the zombie movies. Uh, well, not me. You, you blow this Dale's head off with a shotgun. Um, <laughs> you have not killed any human being there. You have deprived this demon of this tool that it was using, this, this uh, interface that it was somehow interacting in the world with. Uh, but because there was no human person there, you haven't killed a human person. I'm not trying to be blasphemous. I mean, I, I know what the demon possession isn't the same thing as the incarnation, but if the incarnation is supposed to be this eternal divine person now is inhabiting this body, then when that body dies, it's not the death of a human person. It's just the divine person doesn't have that body anymore. He's he's never been dead. It looked that way to an outsider, but if that's the theory, then that that would have to be what happened. Some within Catholic tradition, like Origen, clearly, I think, does have, and even Tertullian, they do have a human person in there in addition to the divine person. And because of that, there is a guy there who died, just he died in the normal way, whatever you think death involved, whether you're a physicalist or a dualist, you know, that's what happened to that poor guy. But at the same time, you have this other character who is just immune to that whole situation in the sense that he didn't and couldn't die. But then once you go that far, I think you're really v- battling against the New Testament because the New Testament, you just have one son, just one Christ. It's you know Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Those are all just co-referring terms for one and the same self. And I just think that's really obvious in the New Testament. Anybody who tries to distinguish between Jesus and the Christ, that's just, that's crazy. You know, that's, that's what some of the second century Gnostics did. You know, they would say that uh, the the divine eon, the Christ flew away at the crucifixion because it was unfitting that such a divine being should be humiliated like that. He left this poor Jesus holding the bag. Those were probably the original two self Christology people would be some of the Gnostics who had that theory about the crucifixion but um orthodoxy took that on in the time of tertullian and origin and then later on they decided that that was nestorianism and they were against that so still if you ask an expert like uh, timothy paul the roman catholic philosopher who's brilliant and has written the best couple of books on incarnation and recent memory tim paul strongly insists that what the tradition is is that the in the in the third and fourth centuries is that the two natures of Christ are two two things. They're not properties. You know, one of them is all-knowing and all-powerful, and one of them is the kind of thing that can die on a cross. And they're pretty explicit about that. And Now, he, he won't say that, um, he won't call the human nature a man, but it does everything that me and you think a man can do. So, I mean, it kind of doesn't matter what you call it. He would say it doesn't count as a man because of the hypostatic union. There's this theory about... Supposits and so on that we shouldn't go into but yeah the, the dying the dying jesus problem i think is a really tough problem for believers in incarnation theory and the argument is not that hey you can't say jesus didn't didn't exist for a while and the solution is just to say well death doesn't mean ceasing to exist i'm not saying death means ceasing to exist i actually don't think that it does but my point is that laying aside theories about what death involves metaphysically those aside just going by the common meaning of death we all know what death is whether atheist or theist it's when you assume room temperature and you stop doing all the things that people normally do as far as we can tell maybe you're floating around disembodied but um, you still can't do most of the things that people do so you're dead you know we've even if you've survived that even if you still exist the argument totally just goes with the common what I claim is the common concept not with any, metaphysical commitment about what death involves
0: okay um yeah so so yeah just to, for the audience sake yeah we we do have that difference in in what does it mean to to die believe it or not i think we both think that our views is is the common common view like i i do think the soul separating from the body is the common biblical view but let's pretend i'm i'm right in my definition dale raises a good objection to think about with the demon possession is the demon a human being i I could bite the bullet and say well yeah once it becomes it's a person and once it becomes embodied it's a human i'm a little Mm, you don't want to do that yeah i'm a little (laughs) uncomfortable with that so i I would probably say my definition needs a qualification to uniquely correlate that body to that soul or to that person or something like that um i need to work on qualifying the the definition uh, a bit but then I would lose uh, common the common sense, I guess. But
1: um... You really don't want to say that the common concept of death is that the soul leaves the body, right? Because then your atheist friend wouldn't believe in death. But no, you, you and him, you, you agree about what death is with your atheist friend, right? But that's because it's just what I said. It's, it's basically losing all of most of your normal functions that are, that are normal for that kind of thing. At grandma's funeral you're not like well i think grandma's dead but you don't because you don't believe in a soul leaving a body that's not right
0: yeah i i guess there, there's put it this way i guess the tradition from my understanding the traditional biblical definition is what i'm getting at of death and obviously atheists wouldn't wouldn't share that so a common modern definition that everyone regardless of the view could agree on would be more along your lines um
1: Paul says in a couple of places specifically, and I think it's presupposed by all the other biblical authors, that God is essentially immortal. So, immortal just means not subject to death, like incapable of dying. And if you're essentially immortal, then just in principle, you couldn't die. Now, if you define dying, if you think the biblical definition of, of just the concept of dying is soul leaving a body... Then what God, as immortal, can't do is have, be a soul that leaves a body. But then, then you're trying to say that's what happened in the crucifixion. You need an account of God's immortality. That's a con, that's an explicit New Testament teaching. And my argument that only that they have to mean essential immortality is they say that God is immortal, and then one place they say He's the only one who's immortal. But at the same time, they believe the risen and exalted Jesus is immortal. Okay? So, if immortality is just essential or not, there are two who are immortal, God and Jesus, and it'd be false to say that only God is immortal. So, they must mean essential immortality. Which, yeah, that's that's just part of monotheistic theology, really, and part of Jewish monotheism. So this is all from a dualist okay yeah i i think this is what death involves for people Uh, i mean i think there could be death that doesn't involve separation from a body like if god wanted to kill an angel seems like it'd be a very easy thing for an all-powerful being to do and i don't think it would be the separation of the soul from the body i think it would just be what i said it would be that angel would lose all or most of its normal life functions now you have a dead angel.
0: Gotcha. And just so I know, this verse is—is is that First Timothy chapter six verse sixteen? You're you're talking about about God being a yeah.
1: Okay. There's a whole passage there. First Timothy six thirteen through seventeen. It's also in First Timothy one seventeen, Romans one twenty three. Those would be the main passages, I think.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I'd, I'd need to to look at that because it, it is talking about God the Father, which fits the Unitarian thing. So I would, I would need to reflect on what does immortal mean in this verse and is that consistent with my definition of death and other verses that define normal human death so yeah that's something i would need to think about and and clarify there so
1: cool when the trinity's podcast returns we return to the topic of creation including a bit of my take on john one Your other point was
0: about creation, God alone. God the Father is the creator in the Old Testament. So, yeah, that's what I was trying to say. That That's an, an identifying feature of Yahweh, is is that he is involved in creation.
1: Well, that's putting it a little gently. I mean, he's more than involved in creation. Like, he did the whole thing on his own, is the Old Testament view. He strongly takes credit for it in a couple of passages.
0: Gotcha. Okay, so, so you would affirm premise three that yeah this is an identifying feature of of god he, he can't share it with other non-yahweh beings or other gods or other
1: human yeah if you're the only creator who did it all by yourself then there can't any, be anybody else who also is that right that's that doesn't make sense
0: so yeah so we agree on that i think your your objection would be more with premise four in, in saying that well jesus is a separate person who also has this property because he you know God creates through him and so with John one one, I, I remember hearing in one of your shows and I was happy to hear that we, we actually agree on on this much that I think what the Logos Christology that came afterwards from John and derived from John is, is kind of confusing Greek philosophy with what John was going on but John more had a Hebrew notion or you know the Aramaic Memra the word of God and Yep. Jews at that time they said, "Look, the it's not God, God proper Yahweh. It's the Memra walking with Adam and Eve in the garden." And, and they, they insert this Memra in, in a whole bunch of passes passages that actually say, "No, God did it." So, I, I agree with you that I I think John has this concept of Memra. But the shocking thing is in John one, he he's saying, and this this Memra became flesh." That Memra is Jesus, and he was with God, distinguishing him from. God the Father and was God. And, and this really seems to support the Trinity monotheism that this Logos that became flesh, which is obviously meant to be Jesus, it, it's not just this. Uh, well, I'll, I'll let you bring back that objection. But um,
1: yeah, I mean, look, it doesn't support Trinity monotheism at all. I don't even think the passage is consistent with, with any kind of Trinitarianism because the one who's called God at the start of John 1, that's that's the Father. So, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You know, the Word which is with God, that God means the Father, it's with the Father, and then it says the Word was the Father. So, um, yeah, I think you're referring to podcast one uh, 291, and the question is, is the God that's with God, is that a different God than the God that he's with? And I claim it's not. But you have to exegete the whole passage, which is, it's a notoriously difficult passage. But the bottom line, I think, is that the word is a personification of a divine attribute. It's it's much like talk of God's wisdom in Proverbs 8 and in many later pieces of wisdom literature that aren't in the Protestant Bible. So God creates by his word in the Old Testament, but that's not like a second agent. That's just God speaking things into existence. And then this word becomes flesh and dwells among us. Yes, but the text doesn't say nor does it presuppose that jesus is the same person as this word the word is just supposed to be a personification of god's wisdom yeah god's wisdom is uniquely revealed uniquely seen in the life of the man jesus that's a view you see in different ways throughout the new testament they call it wisdom christology as as just a general theme so i think it It fits in with that general theme of the New Testament to read John 1 that way. It was the Lagos theorists who ran wild with it. And they said, hey, this word that's with God, this must be in their words. They said it was a second God who is with God, the, the one true God, the Father. And so they found this exegesis to be so compelling because they were platonists and or they were influenced by platonism and they thought that god was so holy that he couldn't interact directly with creation but he had to kind of emanate out an in between being that's sort of neither divine nor created and it's that intermediary demiurge uh craftsman through which the ultimate god has to interact with the world That's a theory that goes back to Plato's dialogue called the Timaeus, where he tells this weird, long cosmological yarn about where everything came from. And the ultimate source has to first emanate out this intermediary and then do everything through that. And so these church fathers in the 100s, they are strongly influenced by these speculations. And so when they come to John 1, they just think it's a slam dunk that there are two gods mentioned here, the original god and the one that's with that god, and then God has to create through that second God. All the other Christians said, hey, where are you getting the second God from? We think there's one, one true God, the Father. And those were called Monarchians. And most Christians, according to Tertullian and Origen, seem to have resisted this new speculation. But over time, it won out. And I think it won out in part because the elites really thought it was a big advantage to, to have this Logos theory. It, it fit right in with the philosophy of their times. And even in the early apologists uh, before Origen and Tertullian, people like uh, Clement of Alexandria, it's out of control. Like they kind of just lay aside the man Jesus and they don't want to talk about him. That's just a Jew that got killed by the Romans. He's embarrassing to them. What they want to talk about is this logos that inspired all the Greek philosophers and through which God created. And hey, we have this logos like you all have heard of this. This is cool, right? Now, it was it was, you know, mystically united in some sense with this man. But we don't really need to talk about him because he's a stumbling block to you Gentiles. Let's just stick with this awesome accessible deity, basically. And so that's logos theory up until the trinitarian takeover in 381 basically
0: i hear what you're saying so like with the wisdom traditions and obviously a lot of many christians today would equate that with the word with jesus and that sort of thing they'll say oh those, those old testament verses are talking about jesus but even with the wisdom tradition so uh, again because my i've got the wrong notes i'm you know, frantically going through books to find it, but I, I did find this from C.H. Dodd. So he speaks on the wisdom tradition in John 1.1, 1, 1, and he, he says, look, he, he's going way beyond anything in the wisdom of Solomon or the, the book of Surak and that sort of thing. It, nowhere in those verses will you ever find anything that, that says, look, and the wisdom was God or something like that. So John is doing something much, much stronger in equating this word, saying the word was God. Um, was this whole Theos.
1: Whole well, yeah, but it, it, I mean, it kind of didn't need to be said. So, I mean, if you read people like Athanasius or Gregory of Nazianzus, they think it's just really obvious that lady wisdom in Proverbs 8 is Jesus. Now, this is crazy. It's just simple reading comprehension that this wisdom lady in Proverbs, she's in several chapters uh, in the first half of the book, starting in chapter one, I think. She's not. A goddess, or a divine being, or a divine person—it's just—it's a personification of wisdom, both human wisdom and divine wisdom. So you know, seek me above all else. I'm more precious than gold and silver. You know, he who finds me finds favor with the Lord, and so on. But then, as God's wisdom, you know, by this wisdom God creates. In Chapter Eight, <laughs> now the way I understand John when he says "Theos ein halagos," God was the Word in that clause of John one one. He's precisely ruling out, thinking this is somebody else than God, because he's vividly personifying it. You know, it was with God. God created th- all things by him, right? He's the light of the world. and But he's warning you, right, as he's about to do all this personification that, yeah, I'm not really talking about somebody else. This is just God, right? Whatever wisdom does in Proverbs, that's just what God does. Whatever God's word does in in any Old Testament passage, you know, he healed them by his word or he created by his word, Psalm 33, 6. Whatever God's word does, that's just what God does. It's not an additional agent. Again, that's just simple reading comprehension. He's riffing on that tradition here, basically. And uh, it takes a lot of time to lay out the whole exegesis of this passage, but one of the facts that I found very kind of surprising and helpful was there are earlier parallels to the word becoming flesh and dwell among us. There's a passage, I forget where, I think it's in Sirach or something, where the Torah, right, God's wisdom is also talked about as the Torah, which, you know, came down and tabernacled among us, it says in one passage. It's talking about God's wisdom, you know, becoming in booked, the books of the Torah, the books attributed to Moses. It's not literal. God's wisdom doesn't somehow get confined to the world or doesn't travel around. It's still God's wisdom, but it's just a very vivid way of kind of expounding on the divine origin of the first five books of the Bible. Uh, So, you know, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. As the chapter goes on to say, Jesus is the greatest revelation of God, even far greater than Moses and earlier, certainly greater than John the Baptist. And so you know, it's like uh, it's like God's wisdom slash word has just come to us in this man. It's a way of speaking that's not hard to follow. One thing that makes it less clear for us is it doesn't say wisdom; it says word. But again, you look in this previous literature and you see them equating God's word with God's wisdom, arguably because the Greek word logos can mean the spoken word or an account or explanation. But it can also mean sort of what you're thinking. It's that which is expressed in the speech. And so by an extension of use, it can also just mean kind of all the contents of God's mind, which is infinite. So now you're, you're thinking about it like God's wisdom. In one passage in one of these intertestamental books, God's wisdom, again, this lady that's personified, she says that she came out of God's mouth. Right. Okay. So then she's the word of God. This is part of the background, I think, that John is presupposing that his readers will be familiar with. And so by that, he's not teaching two creators like the Logos theorists thought or that God had to create indirectly. Like, no, the, the doctrine of creation is unchanged. You know, he creates all things by his word. It's just just him who does it. And guess what? You know, the, the greatest revelation of God's mind or God's wisdom or God's message, you could say, is this man. Right? The word became flesh and dwelled among us. We're all conditioned to see, aha, finally, you know, there's a passage here where incarnation is talked about in addition to Philippians 2. But, you know, incarnation isn't, isn't a clear New Testament teaching in the sense it's traditionally meant. You can call Jesus an incarnation of divine wisdom. There's, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not a theory about, you know, the hypostatic union of two natures like you see in tradition. When the Trinity's podcast returns, we discuss arguments based on singular personal pronouns.
0: Is there anything in terms of your case that you really feel we need to address or that we've overlooked?
1: Yeah, the only thing I think more that I want to very briefly address is the issue of pronouns. So in part of your argument, you said, hey, the things that help us understand that Jesus is a self will also show us that the spirit of God is a self. You know, for instance, there are places where singular masculine pronoun is used for the Holy Spirit, Yes, there is, although some of these may be where it's supposed to be Jesus, but there's a very powerful Unitarian argument here. I talk about this in a 2014 paper, which is free online in the Journal of Analytic Theology. The title is something like Divine Deception and Monotheism. I talk about this argument as given by some early modern Unitarians. So, But the point is not that whenever you see something referred to by a singular personal pronoun, that that has to be a person, a self that's false, right? You can talk about your boat, call her her for, and you know, she's my prized possession and so on. You don't think that boat is a person. Everybody knows there's personification. So that's something that's not a person being talked about as if it were a person. And it goes the other way. There's kind of deep personification too, where you talk about somebody as an uh, impersonal terms, like, I don't know who uh, Justin Trudeau's right hand man is, but if he has some uh, hatchet man that does his dirty deeds done dirt cheap, you could say that, you know, that's the power of the prime minister of Canada. He has many, so but it's uh, still, but it's still a guy, right? Whoever it is, whoever the hatchet yep. man is. Okay. So you can talk about persons like they're not persons. You know, you can personify the nation of Israel and so on. You know, you could say that Germany brought Britain to her knees, things like this. Right. But the strength of the Unitarian argument is, it's the overwhelming use of singular personal pronouns and just the overall characterization of God as a single person. Right. So God appears as a person, like a humanoid figure on a throne or walking in the garden. He says, I, and me, he has a personal name. The whole thing is just very powerfully presenting one person as God. God in in the Bible is a who it's a he. And uh, it's hard to think of anything that could be clearer than that. It's not the same with the Holy spirit. There is some talk of the Holy spirit as if the Holy spirit were a person, but we just know by common sense that sometimes non-persons get talked about as if they were persons and so that's when you have to open up the whole subject of spirit talk in both old and new testament i guess my point is just we're not saying in making these arguments that anything that's referred to by truly by a singular personal pronoun is a person that's a stupid argument that just ignores these facts of language but the overall presentation and the overall pattern of use for god in the bible i think is a really powerful argument i mean if god is three persons and i've published on this as well i mean it looks like god would have deceived everybody because he went around talking about himself as one person constantly and it turns out he's really a group or a society or a perfect family or something why would he be misleading the jews for so long Honestly, you see the same thing in the New Testament. Anyone who's talked about as God in the New Testament, whether that's the Father or even Jesus, it's one person. There's only a, a unipersonal conception of God you could say anywhere in the Bible. So, yeah, I just want to make that point about um, the argument from pronouns.
0: I, even even though I, I disagree with your take here, I, I I think that I agree with you that it is a fair point, that it, it can't just be a simplistic it, you know, I said my boat's a she, so therefore it's a person, or something like that. Um, it, it does come down to the the context. Um, are there indicators that it is really a person or not in the things it does, and, and that sort of thing, in light of other scripture? Because obviously, on the other end, what I thought Dale Tuggy was going to get at, and I was kind of gritting my teeth a bit, is okay. Well, if you're going to use the pronouns simplistically and woodenly, well, look at the Old Testament. I mean every time it mentions God, there's always this singular pronoun. It's he or I, you know, even the Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Shema, which I think is referencing the Trinity when it says you shall worship the Lord and, and the Lord alone and no one else and stuff like that. If you read the the full context verses later, it says, and you shall obey the command that I am giving you, implying that Unitarianism is true if, if you just take it woodenly. And obviously I don't there. So I do think it's a fair point to question, well, okay, is it, is it meaning when it says he, the Holy Spirit is a he, is it truly meaning as a, a person or not? You, you can't just simplistically say it's a he, therefore it's a person. So yeah, I agree with that point.
1: But look at Mark 12, you know, Jesus is talking to a Jew and the Shema comes up and Jesus just simply agrees with him. There's no reinterpretation of the Shema that's in the New Testament. There's some sophistical arguments that N.T. Wright and Bacham have been pushing about 1 Corinthians 8, that somehow Paul is, quote, including Jesus in the Shema. But, I mean, it never happens. You know, the Lord who is one, the one God, the one Lord in the Shema in the New Testament is understood to be the Father, as shown in that verse from John that I quoted in my opening statement. Making clever inferences, I'm, I'm all for clever inferences, but not when they contradict the explicit or otherwise clear teachings. And to me, the main thing a Trinitarian has to do, but they can't do, given the, the New Testament, is to undermine the New Testament teaching that the one God just is the one Jesus calls Father. Those are one and the same. This is the God of Israel. You can't be a Trinitarian and think, with, think that, because the Father is going to just be one third of God in some sense. Or a person within god if you're just a person within god or a third of god or a part a proper part of god you can't be identical numerically identical to god but that's that's what i'm claiming is a is a clear teaching gotcha. clearer than a lot of these other things like the status of the holy spirit or whether jesus pre-existed i mean this is really i think much much clearer what trinitarians will do is they'll say hey look i agree the father's god but these other ones are god too I'm sorry, but that's confused because it's identity we're talking about. We're not just saying the Father is divine. We're saying, yes, the Father is divine, but being divine entails being the one true God. There's only one God. So you can't just say, hey, the, the Bible's monotheistic, and but it turns out that the one God is the Trinity. The New Testament doesn't leave it as an open question who the one God is. It straight up tells you, it assumes it everywhere, the one God is the Father. So then the door's not open to deducing that, well, really, strictly speaking, the one God is the Trinity, because it's very clearly the Father in the New Testament. I'm skeptical of these these deductions. And it's based on a lot of reading the New Testament and now centuries of historical critical scholarship that have undone the traditional Catholic slash Protestant proof text for these things. You know, to take one of many examples, the Father and I are one, you know, modern commenters don't think that that's teaching that the father and son are the same essence. It's really just that they're about the same business. That's what the contextual meaning is. You know, they're working together. Jesus is truly doing God's work. They're one, just like the one who plants and the one who sows are one, like Paul says. But there's a lot of things like that. Just the traditional arguments just are are really in serious trouble that's why there's so much creativity by people like bacham and wright to try to come up with new arguments because the old arguments weren't good so okay we we couldn't prove it the old way like athanasius would do it but we've got to prove it somehow okay but at what point do you just realize that i'm going to agree with the explicit statement of the text that the one true god is the father all right uh
0: yeah ac- excellent conversation dale I- I enjoyed it. Uh, I'm I'm sorry again for that. Was my feeling that uh, I didn't have the the proper notes in front of me that were organized.
1: Um, oh man, I'm sorry about that, man. Technology she giveth and she taketh away, and sometimes she just bites us. I'm sorry that yeah. uh, you had to scramble like that.
0: No worries, it, I, I'd love to blame the, the computer, but it actually was my fault because I, I sent it to my email so I could access it from another one, but I sent the wrong document, So, uh, yeah. <laughs> but we can blame the computer for that, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it was a, a great conversation. Uh, I do think that there were some good points uh, mentioned on both sides. and um, both Dale and I will provide sources on our respective things. Uh, you know, Please check, go further than what we've been able to see. Check, check what the scholarship says on both sides. And yeah, thanks for coming on, Dale. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks again to Dale Glover for a good conversation. On the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, I've got links to some of his work. And also, I've got links to a bunch of scriptures and other Trinity's podcast episodes that are relevant to the many topics that came up in this long discussion of ours. Thanks for listening. Next week's episode will be the last episode for a little while. I always take the month of August off, so the 3rd July episode will be the last one until the first Monday in September. This week's thinking music has been the track Synchronicity by Unheard Music Concepts. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track.